So today's service is on the phenomenon of falling in love. Um, I'll be discussing that and we'll try to contrast it from true or lasting love, infatuation, and certain pathological conditions such as erotomania. Um, I'll also address some of the biological as well as psychological factors involved and discuss a hormone, oxytocin, that seems to be released in certain situations to increase bonding. So I hope this will be fun and interesting, and I also uh, will provide some representative musical snippets as we go along. So the state of being in love, sometimes known as romantic or obsessive love, is characterized by feelings of exhilaration and intrusive, obsessive thoughts about the object of one's infection. Affection. Infection. <laughs> That's an interesting slip, but it, there is a... Uh, there is an infectious model, I guess. Uh, some suggest that this mental state might share certain neurochemical uh, characteristics with the manic phase of manic depression. We'll have our first little snippet. Also, uh, those in love, sometimes the phenomena resemble obsessive compulsive disorder or features of that. Um, so falling and being in love usually implies a shared state between two people, as opposed to infatuation, which I'll talk about in a minute. Some people fall in love seemingly all the time, and some never fall in love. The reasons for this are speculative, but aside from biological or genetic factors, early trauma or deprivation or neglect could be understood as contributing to yearning for closeness or developmental arrest, which could help prevent forming a bond or having that capacity. So for me, the first time I ever had that special feeling about somebody was in fourth grade. A girl named Betty, I don't remember much else about her, but I didn't really know her. She was in a different class. But I used to watch when she'd go in her building after school or come out in the morning. Yeah, that's as far as it went. I, but you see how things can go awry, right? Okay. So, some consider falling in love to be the nearest approach to a spiritual experience possible for the non-religious. Others say, uh, such as M. Scott Peck in The Road Not Traveled, that it's a loss of ego boundaries and it's merely a temporary phenomenon which has little to do with or may even block spiritual development. Have another little tune. That's the first one. You've got to advance it. It's worth. Some of these may be familiar to you.
So infatuation is a state of being completely carried away by unreasoned passion or love. Some call it addictive love. It usually occurs in the beginning of a relationship and uh, love can be described as a feeling of intense affection for another person. Um, and it's often talked about as an emotion between two persons, as I said. This is distinguished this, uh, from infatuation. So this other type of love is sometimes called interpersonal love. Infatuation is a state of being completely lost in the emotion of unreasoning desire. It involves urgency, intensity, sometimes high-risk choices, and reckless abandon. The euphoria is similar to recreational drug use, uh, addictive chemicals uh, reacting in the brain, and uh, individuals can risk everything for the next rush of adrenaline. The hallmark of being infatuated is wanting to be around that person. This can be transient or a prelude to falling in love or leading to more lasting love. Next song. So, love, or what some people call true love, is an intense feeling of deep affection involving faithfulness, loyalty, confidence, willingness to make sacrifices for the other, working at settling differences, the ability to compromise so that either both win or at least uh, the other person's opinion is given a chance. There's commitment to, to one another. And there's a think, and there's the, the thinking about other person's feelings before acting. Love requires some selfishness, selflessness, and selfishness and selflessness, and polite assertiveness. Infatuation feels like being in love, but it is not. The intensity of the emotion is strong, but it's more fleeting and not reciprocal. Not a mutual feeling between two people is mentioned. Okay.
So love is the quiet understanding and mature acceptance of imperfection. Love's always associated with connection between two souls that goes beyond the self. Infatuation, as I said, is about thinking about oneself and not the other person. Infatuation is weakened by time and separation, whereas real love can endure time and separation. Infatuation is often thought of in the context of teenagehood or adolescence. Anyone can be in love at any age, but most love stories before the age of 20 are considered infatuation or puppy love. Thank you. This is not to say, however, that puppy love or infatuation is trivial or not often intense and powerful and shouldn't be minimized or taken insincerely. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist and philosopher, has said, quote, when we fall in love, for example, we usually fall in love with an image we have of our beloved. We cannot eat, sleep, or do anything because this image in us is so strong. Our beloved is beautiful to us, but our image may actually be far from the reality. We don't realize that the object of our perception is not the reality in itself, but an image we have created. After we marry and live with our beloved for two or three years, we realize that the image that we held on to and stayed awake at night thinking about was, lar was largely false, because our distorted image is a representation, not a direct perception. So erotomania is a type of delusion in which the affected person believes that the other person, often a stranger or a high status or famous person, is in love with them. The illness is a psychosis, as in patients with schizophrenia or bipolar mania. During an erotomanic episode, the person believes that a secret admirer is declaring their affection to that person, often by special glances, signals, telepathy, or messages through the media. Usually the person then returns the perceived affection by means of letters, phone calls, gifts, and visits to the unwitting recipient. Even though these advances are unexpected and often unwanted, any denial of affection by the object of this delusional love is dismissed by the patient as a ploy to conceal the forbidden love from the rest of the world. Or if the rejection is finally convincing, this often leads to rage and violence. Erotomania is also called de Clarembeau's syndrome after the French psychiatrist who published a comprehensive review paper on the subject, Les Psychoses Passionnelles, in 1921. The assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley, Jr. was reported to have been driven by an erotomanic fixation on Jodie Foster. In his mind, the act was to impress her. So the cause of this is not really known, but like many other psychiatric problems, um, there are cases where this particular uh, syndrome has been present from an early age 
whereas in other cases, perfectly normal people have suddenly developed these delusions. This, off, interestingly, often has occurred after brain damage, especially to the right hemisphere. Although many people with erotomania also display, uh, they also display less than normal ability to recognize faces, although their ability to recognize voices and names does not change. This can be understood, again, as a malfunction of the right hemisphere in the brain, which is involved in recognizing faces. In a London study from the year 2000 to try and identify the areas of the brain activated by romantic love, they took students who said they were madly in love, put them into a brain scanner, and looked at their patterns of brain activity. There were some surprising results. For a relatively small area of the human brain, is active in this initial romantic love compared to that involved in, say, ordinary friendship. The second surprise was that the brain areas were different from the areas activated in other emotional states such as fear and anger. Parts of the brain stimulated include the area responsible for gut feelings. I knew a girl once who said love is a stomach condition. And those parts which generate the euphoria induced by drugs such as cocaine, this is mediated by dopamine. Um, I know it involves the amygdala, especially, um, but I have more detail on it if you want. Um, okay, Josh? The next one, whatever that would be. Five. Chances So that's Johnny Mathis, recording from, I guess, about 1960 or thereabouts. And I saw him this last year in concert. He's over 80 now, and he still sings great. He's, if you get a chance, he's still amazing. Still sings the same song, too. <laughs> so a psychologist, Arthur Aaron, more than 20 years ago, did a study where a man and woman enter a lab, sit face to face, and answer a series of increasingly personal questions, 36 questions. Then they stare silently into each other's eyes for four minutes. Now, I don't know how many were involved in this, in this study, but six months later, two of the participating couples were married. And uh, it seemed that this process uh, accelerated uh, personal intimacy. Okay, um, and yeah, Josh, next one.
Um, so, a new book, a new study suggests that we unconsciously may select our partner in part by sniffing out their compatibility genes, so to speak. There are a small number of human genes, a tiny section of the short ar arm of chromosome 6, that may play a role in determining how attractive you are to a potential mate. So the so-called smelly t-shirt experiment, which was first performed by a Swiss zoologist called Klaus Wedekind in 1994, he analyzed a particular bit of the DNA of a group of students looking specifically at the major histocompatibility genes. The students were split into 49 females and 44 males. The men were asked to wear plain cotton t-shirts for two nights while avoiding, while avoiding anything such as alcohol, cologne, etc., that might alter their natural scent. After two days, the shirts were placed in cardboard boxes with holes in them. This is kind of hard to believe. But. <laughs> and the women were asked to rank the boxes by smell using three criteria, intensity, pleasantness, and sexiness. The women preferred the t-shirts worn by men with different compatibility genes from themselves, raising the possibility the, that we unconsciously are drawn to mates who would put our offspring at some genetic advantage. While the experiment uh, is controversial and the mechanism is poorly understood, it hasn't stopped dating agencies from employing compatibility typing as a matchmaking tool. The range of HLA types you possess, effectively your genetic self, comprise your ability to fight off certain diseases and your susceptibility to others. So these are distributed amongst us in a way that protects the population as a whole, so an epidemic can't wipe us all out. At the personal level, though, a healthy di diversity of HLA types is an obvious benefit. So when someone smells attractive to you, so the notion goes, you're smelling HLA types you don't have. Mice can and do detect compatibility genes by smell. A stickleback fish also chooses mates by their odor. But in humans, our olfactory sense is, you know, is very muted. So how this works on the olfactory level is basically not understood at all in people. I wanted to talk about the hormone oxytocin I mentioned before. And this is a hormone produced by the hypothalamus and stored and released by the posterior pituitary. Um, it causes contractions in labor, and it stimulates milk secretion in nursing mothers. But interestingly, it also has activity in the brain, and it facilitates social interaction and attachment, or sometimes it's known as the bonding hormone. So an infant um, nurses or just gazes into the eyes of the mother. When this happens, oxytocin is released, and it helps strengthen the bond between the mother and child. This would make sense from an evolutionary standpoint for the survival of the child. Oxytocin is also released in various situations of touch, massage, eye contact, and sexual behavior. It seems that having this hormone available during positive experiences is associated with well-being in relationships. Women who are currently involved in a committed relationship experience greater oxytocin releases in response to positive emotions. Oxytocin also apparently helps people recognize familiar faces. Study participants who had one dose of an oxytocin nasal spray showed improved recognition memory for faces, but not for inanimate objects. So thus having a role in strengthening neuronal systems for social memory. 
So there's an animal called the prairie vole, which is a sociable creature, one of only 3% of mammal species that appear to form monogamous relationships. However, another vole, a close relative called the montane vole, has no interest in partnership beyond a one-night stand. What's intriguing is that these vast differences in behavior are the result of a mere handful of genes. The two vole species are more than 99% alike genetically. When prairie voles mate, oxytocin is released. When the hormones are blocked, the prairie voles become fleeting in their relationships, just like that normally involved by their cousins, the montane moles. Conversely, if prairie voles are given an injection of the hormones but prevented from having sex, they still form a preference for their chosen partner. In other words, researchers can make prairie voles fall in love or whatever the vole equivalent of that is with an injection. It is hoped that understanding the neurochemical pathways that regulate social attachments may help to deal with defects in people's ability to form relationships. It turns out that the faithful prairie vole has receptors for oxytocin and another hormone, vasopressin, in brain regions associated with reward and reinforcement, where the montane vole does not. If the gene for oxytocin is knocked out of a mouse before birth, that mouse will become a social amnesiac and have no memory of the other mice it meets. Virgin female rats injected with oxytocin fawn over another female's young, nuzzling the pups and protecting them as if they were their own. Monkeys given the hormone will spend more time grooming each other. So in another, uh, oxytocin also appeals to make people trust each other more. In a study, 60 female college students uh, gave blood samples before and after they each received a $24 gift from a stranger. The women could return a portion of the money to the stranger or not. Before the experiment, the women also finished a survey about their general disposition and satisfaction with life. The women who showed a higher increase in oxytocin after receiving the money were the ones likely to say they were satisfied with their lives and shared the most money with the strangers. However, the increased trust is not towards the world in general, but toward the particular person involved. It seems that this hormone does not lead to universal brotherhood, but rather somewhat ethnocentric behavior. Oxytocin increases the bonding of people to others who share their values. So um, we talked a couple weeks ago about the inherent tendency to fear those that are other than you in terms of discussions of racism. So it would be interesting to see if this hormone would facilitate communication and break down bias barriers, for instance, given to different ethnic groups. And maybe if given to the Republicans and the Democrats in the room, we'd get a bill with adequate border protection and fair immigration services. So regarding possible implications for treatment of mental illness, a study of patients with schizophrenia who were on antipsychotic meds, who took oxytocin for three weeks along with their regular medicine, improved their symptoms and hallucinations um, compared to those taking placebo. Additionally, social cognition, with the ability to accurately interpret facial and expressive and social cues and to draw inferences, may improve with oxytocin given to such patients. One of these studies, which were done at UCLA, involved a single dose evaluation of the effect of oxytocin on social cognition me measures. It was found statistically significant 
um, effects occurred, such as the ability to, de to detect lies and sarcasm compared to before. Another study, when oxytocin was administered prior to social cognition training, it appeared to facilitate learning of other high-level social cognition abilities, particularly empathic accuracy. So oxytocin can have a variety of emotional responses uh, and may help patients, too, with borderline personality disorder feel less threatened socially and reduce anger and aggressive behavior. This was a study from Germany. Patients with borderline personality disorder often have great difficulty with social interaction, in part because they interpret facial and other social cues as threatening. So there was a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind study, 40 adult women with borderline personality disorder and 41 healthy women, or non-borderline persons. Um, they were shown pictures of various kinds of facial cues. Forty-five minutes after the task, the subject in, this, in the study received either intranasal oxytocin or placebo. The patients with the borderline personality disorder initially responded more fearfully to images of the eyes of angry faces with increased activation of the amygdala compared with the healthy control group. However, the abnormal behavior and neural patterns were normalized after oxytocin administration. Oxytocin's also been described as maybe helping anorexics fight food fixation. People with autism have been given oxytocin, and it seems that a lot of the most recent research is in this area. Um, research has shown that people with autism naturally have lower levels of oxytocin than those without autism. And some of this newer data suggests that oxytocin can improve social communication in autistic individuals. How does it work? Uh, one hypothesis is that it dampens the activity of the brain center of the amygdala, thereby easing stress and anxiety. Because oxytocin's proposed blunting effects on the amygdala, there's also been the hypothesis that it would help those with post-traumatic stress disorder. While oxytocin's effects so far uh, have been subtle rather than drastic, it still could possibly be a useful therapy. Most studies have looked at the effects on patients only after a single dose. If Prozac, the widely prescribed antidepressant, were administered that way, the effects would be seen uh, more subtle as well. Researchers don't know whether upping the body's natural amount of oxytocin or giving it over long periods of time could even ultimately be harmful, and it remains to be seen whether it affects men and women differently. It may present health risks to women because it's of its role in birth, including contractions of the uterus. Most studies have been conducted in men. So it's remarkable, I think, that a substance like oxytocin can affect such high-level human behavior. But one would hope that our highly developed conscious minds can often w outweigh, rash have rational data outweigh the influence of biology on the emotions uh, and, where appropriate, override this uh, property. Okay, final song.
Thank you very much.